Uh, but I would ask you now to take God's Word in your hand and look to the book of Mark chapter 2 this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through chapter 3, verse 6. We're going to deal with another uh, decent portion of Scripture today under the heading of leaving legalism. And while you're turning to Mark chapter 2, verses 2, uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through chapter 3, verse 6, we're going to be looking at three episodes in the life of Jesus and in his ministry where he runs into opposition, and it comes rather quickly in the Gospel of Mark. We won't have the time of confrontation with the chief priests and the religious leaders uh, in the Gospel of Matthew until chapter 8. We won't have it in the Gospel of Luke until chapter 5, but Mark right away, moving just and very much quick to the point and just dealing with the facts, tells us right away that Jesus has this uh, confrontation beginning and it gets larger and larger with the religious leaders of his day. And three episodes are going to take place in our reading of the scripture today that are going to point to the religious leaders being really angry and ticked off at Jesus that he doesn't do things the way that they want him to do it. What we're going to see today is that Jesus is the scandal maker. Now, we know what the word scandal is. We see it in politics all the time. It's our, history, our TV watching reminds us over and over again through the news that there are scandals after scandals after scandals. And who hasn't been watching uh, the scandal unfold at Penn State? All the horrific stories that are coming out and the abuse of children. And, and we are blown away sometimes with some of the information that we get from the issue of scandals in our lives. Well, Jesus was one who was creating a scandal. But what is a scandal? I, I wanted to define it because it's a word that we use, but sometimes we don't understand what it is. It is an action or event regarded as morally or legally wrong that causes general public outrage. An action or event regarded as morally or legally wrong that causes general public outrage. How could Jesus have been a scandal maker? This Jesus who had done no sin, this Jesus who had healed, who had served, who had loved, who had shown mercy instead of judgment, how could this Jesus have been one to create a scandal? Because we're going to learn in our text today that he had caused some general public outrage. There were people that were just appalled at the way that Jesus was doing ministry. Why is it that Jesus would be put as a scandal maker? The scandal came not because Jesus was doing things against the will of his Father, but because he was doing it against the will of the people. And some of those people had said ministry had to be done this way, and it had to fit a certain box. And if you didn't do it that way, then we were going to be angry with you, and we were going to call you names, and we were going to say that you were of the devil. And Jesus says once and for all that ministry must be done and our work and our Christian life must be done according to God's standards, not the standards of men. Here's the problem this morning. We live in a world of legalism. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know the subtle nature of legalism. I'm a recovering legalist and I struggle with it all the time. Because I see someone whose hair is too long or, or a piercing that isn't on ears. And, and I sit there and say, well, that's just messed up. You shouldn't be doing that. And then I begin to think that the God can't use a person like that. And maybe for you, it's different things. Maybe it's the clothes that they wear, the people that they hang out with. We are legalists because it's easy to be legalists. 
It's easy to put people into our box instead of allowing God's grace to allow that box to be open even when it makes us feel uncomfortable. The Pharisees were feeling uncomfortable. Jesus was opening the box of how grace was to be seen in the life of people. And the Pharisees got angry, and it says at the end of it that they wanted to kill Jesus. So how do we make sure that we live out this example of following Christ and leaving that legalism away, uh, aside and leaving it once and for all. We need to look at our text this morning to find that out. So I'm going to ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to see these three episodes take place in the life of Jesus and his ministry. First, with the calling of one of his disciples, Levi. This is what it says in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I want just a quick uh, commentary there. I like how the word sinners in my translation is put into quotes because we talk about sinners. Look at me for a moment. Sinners. And we begin to label people. This is what the Pharisees had done. They had labeled them the sinners. And he goes on and he says uh, that Jesus heard them and said to them in verse 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Now Jesus' question about fasting in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people had come and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours do not? Jesus answered, how can the guests, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Then we deal with the Sabbath. Notice verse 23. On, on one Sabbath, Jesus was walking through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. 
He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for these three examples, these three episodes in our text today that all come under this heading of legalism, making people fit our way of doing life in the Christian walk instead of doing it the way the scriptures say. Lord, there's a part of all of us probably that struggles with a bit of legalism. And Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our mind to the new way that you've called us to do things, that grace may be there in the time of need for people around us. Lord, change us, make us new, so that we can be the fresh cup of water that a dry and thirsty land is looking for. Lord, I pray that that would be who we are as a people, that would be who we are as a church, so that many might know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. As we look at this issue of leaving legalism, the first thing we have to be able to do is we have to be able to identify the problem that legalism brings. Now for some of you, legalism may be a word that you don't know very well, and I want to help us identify it looking at a couple different ways of doing it. The first one is a standard definition. What is a definition that we would know and understand what legalism is? Legalism, look to the screen as an overemphasis on law and codes of conduct or legal ideas, and it usually implies a misguided rigor, pride, or superficiality. The neglect of mercy and ignorance of the grace of God or the emphasizing the letter of the law over the spirit of the law. Now you could get lost in all of those words, but it's important that we understand this. What that literally means is that as a Christian, I begin to overemphasize all of the minute details and thoughts that maybe the scripture has, and I add a couple hundred of my own, if you will, or even one can be legalism, and without having grace and mercy, I come with great rigor, I come with great uh, fury, and I tell you how to live your life and how to do things right so that God will be happy with you. And it's not from what God has told you how to live, it's what I've said is the way that makes God happy. There's a problem with that because nowhere in the scriptures does it say that we should live that way. In fact, Jesus addresses in his uh, fight with the uh, Pharisees the following in Matthew 23. And from the message paraphrase, I think does a great job of showing how the Pharisees we're living lives of legalism. Notice what the scripture says. Now Jesus turned to address his disciples along with the crowd that had gathered with them. The religion scholars, he says, and Pharisees are competent teachers in God's law. You won't go wrong in following their teaching on Moses, but notice what he says. Be careful about following them. They talk a good line, but they don't live it. They don't take it into their hearts and live it out in their behavior. It's all spit and polish veneer, just surface level, he says. Instead of giving you God's law as food and drink by which you banquet on God, they package it in bundles of rules, loading you down like pack animals. They seem to take pleasure in watching you stagger around these loads and wouldn't think of lifting a finger to help. But notice what he says. 
Their lives are perpetual fashion shows, embroidered prayer shawls one day, and flowery prayers the next. They love to sit at the TED table at church dinners, basking in the most prominent positions, preening in the radiance of public flattery, receiving honorary degrees and being called doctor and reverend. You're hopeless, he says. You religion scholars and you Pharisees, you're frauds. You keep meticulous account books, tithing on every nickel and every dime you get. But on the meat of God's laws, things like fairness and compassion and commitment, the absolute basics, he says, you carelessly take it or leave it. He says careful bookkeeping is commendable, but the basics are required. Do you have any idea how silly you look? He's speaking to the Pharisees writing a life story that's wrong from the start to finish, nitpicking over sem, uh, colons, uh, commas and semicolons. I want you to understand that what legalism is, it is robbing people of their joy in their relationship with God by imposing of rules. In the simplest way, what it says is, is that taking rules and whether they're man-made or they're from Scripture, and adding on to them requirements that even the Bible doesn't put with the expectation that will convince me that I'm doing a better job at living this Christian life than you are. And so if I carry around a big Bible, and if I make sure that, that uh, I pray when it's the public time of prayers, and, and I make sure that uh, my kids finish all their Awana sections, and, and uh, we make sure that we don't have a, a TV in the house, and we make sure that we turn off the radio, these things make us holy people. And the Bible doesn't speak to any of that. We are living lives of legalism. Notice what he goes on. This is C.J. Mahaney, a pastor, uh, that I, I've appreciated his words. He goes on and he says, flip the thing, rules that show me how good I am and incidentally how bad you are. What legalism makes for trouble in the church is we begin to say, I'm a good Christian, but you're not. I'm right with God, but you're not. And you say, but where do you get that understanding? Where do you get that, that basis? It's based on my understanding of Scripture. It's based on what I think is important or not. We need to be careful with this. Legalists will not add much to Scripture, whole new list of requirements, as they do take the sparse law of the Lord or the spare law of the Lord, meaning the small things that the Bible does say we should and shouldn't do, and we add to that or codify it into a bazillion provisos and caveats. We grant that they would have done it with the best of intentions, but here's the problem with legalism. Those who are a part of it are serious about obedience to God, and they were so serious that they couldn't keep their own rules, so they made loopholes to ease the burden of them. Before long, the rules became stuff that if I do this, it makes me one on the in, and if you don't, one on the out. That's a lot of reading. And literally, I want you to see that from a couple different perspectives because legalism is subtle. We think we're doing right. We think that we are telling our kids to do what they're supposed to. And I will tell you, I have found myself leading legalistic parenting lives at time. You want to know when you're a legalist? When you articulate the words, do as I say, not as I do. That's a great phrase for a legalist. Because what it says is, you fit in my box, but I'm going to opt out of having to live in my box. Because it's too hard. 
You can't expect me to live like that, but I expect you to do that. We need to understand legalism and identify it when it comes. It's subtle. Now notice the second thing that we need to see this morning. We need to see and understand the places where legalism comes. Where does it come from? Where is it a part of our lives? We need to understand that legalism can be a part of anything that we do as a Christian life. Now, before we get too far into this, we need to understand that legalism is one side of the spectrum. It's taking the word of the Lord and making it a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts, and we need to be careful of that, but we also need to be careful because there are some, and I shared this in the first service, the teenagers of our church would say, that's right, Tim, you tell my parents that rules and regulations are bad. You tell them that I don't have to be at home at a certain time. You tell them that curfews are bad, that's legal. It's, it's a legalistic approach. I should be able to do what I want, when I want, how I want. Well, let me tell you something. There are adults that feel the same way. One thing that I hear over and over again as a church leader is anytime the church leaders try to help lead the church and maybe come up with a rule or, or a regulation, what is the title that is put on the church? You're being a legalist. Let me tell you that there is a, uh, an error that's just as bad as legalism, and it's called, it's a big word, it's called antinomianism. Literally what it means is anti-law. That's the teenager. The teenager wants to do what he wants, when he wants to do it, without any regard of what's going to happen to him or those around him. The problem with it is, is that legalism and antinomianism were the two bookends of what was going on in the first century church. Paul speaks to the uh, legalism when he speaks to the Judaizers and Galatians. And he says, people that say you've got to work for your salvation, or you've got to follow the laws and be circumcised and not eat certain food, hey, that's legalism. Run away from that. But Paul also says in the book of Romans to a group of people who had said, hey, we should be able to do whatever we want. Everything's under grace. Paul says, should we sin all the more? so that grace may abound. And so you have these two bookends, legalism and, if you will, antinomianism that are fighting back and forth. We have to understand that the Scripture clearly articulates commands and regulations. People get mad. They say the Bible's full of rules and regulations. It is. And there's no way you can get around it. The Bible's full of commands. And so when your coworker or your neighbor says, that's why I don't like Jesus, I don't like rules, I don't like regulations, my next question to them would be, do you like anarchy? Would you like anarchy as you're trying to drive through a four-way intersection? Or are you glad there are rules and regulations that tells the other people they need to stop and that they do stop? What God's laws and regulations are for, are for our protection. They are the parents, if you will, of the teenage kid who just wants to do whatever they want, who thinks they should be able to do whatever they want, and a loving mom and dad who says, for your own good, for your own protection, for your own joy, you may not see it right now, but for your own joy, I'm going to give you some rules and regulations. God gives laws. And churches should establish and should uphold those laws and call people to stand true to those laws because if we don't, there'll be anarchy. But the thing we have to be careful with is not to make up our own rules and our own ways of how we get to God. And that's subtle. 
So where do we see it? Where do we see legalism being found? First of all, it's engaging sinners. It's found, first of all, in engaging sinners. In our text, Jesus' first encounter in our text is with a man named Levi. He's by the Sea of Galilee again, and he's preaching. That's where he's been preaching up to this point. And the crowds are following him. Jesus has become quite the celebrity. And Jesus is walking, and he's teaching them, and he comes across a path of a man named Levi. He's also known as Matthew. And Levi, we are told right away, is a tax collector. And he's sitting at the tax collector's booth. A tax collector is a modern-day IRS agent. That's the job that he had. And while we may not like the IRS agents, many of them are, are most of them, I would probably say, are good, wonderful people doing what has been asked of them by our government to make sure rules and regulations are met. But this wasn't what tax collectors were like in the first century. Levi was a Jew, but he was collecting taxes for the Romans. Levi was hated by the people. And so when Jesus calls Levi, he's a hated individual. But it gets even worse because tax collectors were known to be defiled individuals. That's why they were called tax collectors and sinners. Because tax collectors were people that were known to steal or rob people of money that wasn't due for taxes. Remember the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, remember we learned that wee little man and a wee little man was he? Remember that guy? He was a tax collector. He meets Jesus. Jesus goes to his house. And on the night that Jesus goes to his house, Zacchaeus meets once and for all the God of grace. And because he meets the God of grace, he stands and announces to the whole room of his friends, I'm going to give back four times what I stole from people. Zacchaeus was just a run-of-the-mill tax collector, and Levi probably was the same. And so when the Pharisees see Jesus not only talk to this man, but now engage with him and even go to his home and have a meal and party with him, if you will, the Pharisees are livid. They're angry. We don't mess around with those types of people. The people we want are the refined people, the cleaned up people, the people who follow our sets of rules. Can I tell you something? There's a whole lot of churches in our world that lead ministries for those types of people. Let me tell you, those ministries are not following the example of Christ. Christ goes to the people that were the worthless ones, the broken ones, the hated ones. And what Jesus does is he interacts with Levi. And he goes and hangs out with Levi's friends, and he interacts with them. And what do the Pharisees do? They say, how can he hang out with these people? And we've done that, I'm sure. There have been times where you've seen a Christian Maybe the Christian's out with some uh, work buddies and, and they go into a, a, a bar. Yeah, what's that Christian doing in that bar? Or they go and they see uh, them hanging out and they hear their, their friends uh, using bad language. And they're like, well, how can our Christian be a part of that kind of conversation? And what we begin to do is our legalist mind says, then they must be falling to sin. They must be interacting and a part of that. Jesus shows us some things that we need to understand about engaging with sinners. Number one, write these down in your, bullet, or your outline this morning. The first thing that we see is in Christ's example is that no one is beyond hope. Write that down. No one is beyond hope. There is nobody in this world today 
who is beyond the grace of Almighty God. And legalism will say, only you, you, and you can come into the kingdom. But looking at you, I'm not sure about that. Just a couple weeks ago, I got an e, uh, a, a Facebook um, message from a guy that I went to school with, and this guy was the king of partying. I mean, if you wanted to be a part of all kinds of carousing and all kinds of fun, you went to this guy's parties. And man, this guy had, he never had one girlfriend. He always had multiple girlfriends, and it was odd because everybody knew it. He was a drinker, he did drugs, and this guy just was known to be, if you wanted to hang with him, man, you were a part of Sin City. And a couple weeks ago on Facebook, he sent a response to all of his friends, me being one of them, and he said, I've met Jesus. And he says, it's changed my life. And he says, to all those women that I was wrong to, I'm sorry. To all those that I, I told they should get drunk and sold drugs to, please forgive me. I want you to know that I found Jesus. And you know what my first response was? Did he really meet Jesus? Because he was pretty rotten. He was pretty filthy. And maybe this is something he was a part of. And that legalism came into me because I said, everybody else in my graduating class, they could meet Jesus, but not him. Uh-uh. No way, Jose. He's too far away from the Lord. And me, with my pharisaical robes and tassels, I began to look down the long bridge of my nose at him. And I said, he's outside of the grace of God. Jesus shows me, your legalistic pastor, that nobody's beyond hope. Amen? Nobody. The same grace that met me is the same grace that met him. Is the same grace that met you. Is the same grace that met Levi. And because we're not beyond hope, then nobody, our neighbors, our co-workers, that guy that makes your life just a living disaster, isn't beyond the hope that Jesus Christ brings. Number two, write this down. No one knows what's happening in the heart of a man. Jesus was able to know the heart of Levi. And he met Levi right, was where, right where he was at. We need to understand that while we can see a lot of actions and body language, we can't see what's going on inside the heart. So be careful, because we judge people based on externals. Jesus judges people by the internals. Remember Jesus, or uh, when God is looking for a king, he says, I don't look at the outside appearance of a man, but the inward nature of his heart. And we're so quick judging because of what they're wearing or what's on their faces or what color their hair is or, or what they seemingly are doing on the outside that we never ask the question, what's going on in the heart? What's taking place inside? Number three, write this down. With God, there is potential for even the greatest of sinners. He's calling a tax collector, a scoundrel, and what Jesus is saying is even scoundrels can do great things for me. The Apostle Paul, the great Pharisee of Pharisees, did great things for God, establishing the grace of Almighty God. Nobody is without potential when God is a part of it. And Jesus reminds us of that in the text. The final thing that we see when the calling of Levi is that hanging out with people doesn't mean we have to endorse everything. Now, I understand there's a proverb that says, 
Bad company, bad company corrupts good character. That's a truism, meaning that there's a lot of truth to that. But what we do as Christians is say, well, then, then I can't be a part of it. Then I can't be engaged in it. And what happens is, is the only people we hang out with anymore are Christians. And we're not reaching out, and we're not doing what Christ did in reaching out to people that are hurting because we're afraid they may dirty us. We're afraid that they may uh, make us fall to sin. Well, that's something we do need to pray about, but it should never be an excuse from allowing us to go and engage the people around us. When we start doing Jesus' ministry, we are going to start seeing some real broken people we're going to see some people come into this place that don't fit the Village Bible Church mold. And I would say, praise the Lord. Because when we start to reach out, God will call people from all places. A person doesn't look very good when they're under a rock. And Jesus found Levi under the rock. And he pulled him out and he said, you know what? I want you to follow me. And that's our calling. As we engage people, we need to make sure legalism isn't there. I want to give you the next two very quickly, and I'll just highlight them. We need to make sure that legalism doesn't come out in our exercising of spiritual disciplines. He deals with the issue of fasting. I'll address that in a minute. Then finally, the elevation of the Sabbath. What I would say is that it's the elevation of spiritual disciplines and special days. When we start saying that what I do as a Christian makes me Christian, or what I do as a Christian makes God say that I'm better than you, we're in trouble. Jesus addresses this, and he says when people asked about fasting, they said, your guys aren't fasting, and you're supposed to be fasting. That's not even true. Nowhere in the Old Testament had the disciples or followers of God been called to fast. But the Pharisees had made that a big thing, and that they had said, well, the way that we show our true allegiance to God is to fast. And so what they would do is they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And as soon as 6.01 on the clock hit, they would be gorging themselves. And they would be talking in the hours coming up to 6 o'clock. Oh, how hungry I am. I've been fasting all day. And can you believe it? The sacrifices I do for the Lord. Look how holy I am. I just can't wait till 6 o'clock so I can eat like a slob. And then what they would do is they would put a sackcloth on, which is a, almost like a potato sack f uh, fabric, and they would put ashes on their head, and they would go around sad and pathetic, and, and everybody would say, oh, what's wrong with you, Tim? Well, I'm fasting for the Lord, and it's so hard, and, and I haven't eaten, and you guys are out eating like the pagans, but look how spiritual I am. I'm not eating because I want to be close to God. You know what God, Jesus says about fasting? He says, make sure nobody even knows what you're doing. He says, keep it quiet. Because it's not for other people to see. It's between you and God. And if you're going to do it, that's okay. I'm not commanding you to do it. And it can be useful. But don't go around with sad faces, looking like you're pathetic. These guys wouldn't even bathe, which is kind of weird. Um, and, and so they wouldn't even be a part of it. They wanted to look as pathetic as possible. And what Jesus says is, hey, you can't conform people into holiness, which we're going to talk about in a moment, so I'll leave it there. But then he goes to the Sabbath. And we as Christians have to be very careful because, yes, it, keeping the Sabbath holy is one of the commands, and we do have some, some issues with regards to that because the Sabbath day for the Jew was Saturday, and we have now instituted Sunday as the day that is given to the Lord. 
But we need to be careful because what we begin to say is people that do things on Sunday are sinful and because we don't, we're godly. And there's a problem with that because the Bible is very clear on the things that make the days, the Lord's day special and the things that, if you will, are able to be done in those times. As a result of that, outside things became the issue instead of the internals. And as a result of that, what people were doing was going down the list of do's and don'ts and saying, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm a good Christian. And some of us in this place today look at your Christian life and say, yep, I go to church, yep, I read my Bible, yep, I listen to Christian radio, yep, I don't let my kids watch cable TV, yep, I don't do things on Sunday, I'm a good Christian. That has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity says, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I am a dead man, and Jesus has saved me. And my job isn't to knock off a list of things to do. Think about your marriages if you were to do that. That'd be a pretty pathetic marriage. You said, yeah, I said hi to Amanda. I washed the dishes. I uh, uh, took out the trash, and I made sure I was a good dad today. I'm a good husband. No. My relationship with my wife is I love her, and I want to spend time with her, and I want to please her, and I want to honor her, and I want to minister to her because I love her. The relationship that we have is not a list of do's and don'ts. And so get that out of your mind and stop living that way because it will become a drudgery, not a desire. But the relationship that we have with Jesus is, you've saved me. You have loved me when I was unlovable. Now I want to live for you. I will fail. You know it, God. But I'm so glad that when I fail, I can confess my sins and you're faithful and just to forgive me. And so as you forgive me, it just gives me more reason to love you and to serve you and to do as you say. And so it's not a drudgery to get up and read the Bible. It's not a drudgery to pray. It's not bondage to say no to certain entertainment. It's joy because I'm in a relationship of love. That's what real Christianity should look like. So now let's apply this. Let's look at point number three this morning. We need to then pursue the path of victory against legalism. How do we do it? It's found in Christ. I want to look at just a couple of these and we're going to close our time uh, this morning. The first thing we need to do as Christians to make sure legalism doesn't become a part of who we are so we don't become the chief priests and leaders is pursue heart change, not just conformity. There are some of us who have come and met Jesus and what Jesus meant was doing things differently but holding on to the same desires and wants. And so what we do is we conform ourselves into the pattern that sounds Christian, looks Christian, but deep down inside we've never changed. Let me tell you what Christianity is. It's a rebirth, not a reforming. It is God taking away the old and putting in the new. This rebirth changes everything of who we are. And so we can't just conform ourselves into uh, who we think a Christian should be. F.F. Bruce, a great theologian, put it this way. Doing the will of God is not a matter of conformity to outward rules, but of giving expression to inward love. It's about how I feel on the inside, the love I have for Jesus. It should never be a drudgery. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it in all abundance. Jesus said that our Christian life should not be a burden. It shouldn't be us making sure we fit the mold. He said, I have come and that my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. There should be no conformity. Jesus says that it involves a a new garment, not patching of an old one. It's new wineskins for new wine, not old wineskins that will burst with the new wine. Those are illustrations that he uses. The next thing that we need to see is that as Christians, we are called to be holy, not hypocritical. We're called to be holy, not hypocritical. We need to be careful with the adage, do as I say, not as I do. Because hypocrisy is only skin deep. Notice what chapter 3, verse 6 says. Chapter 3, verse 6. These Pharisees, these holy rolling Pharisees, these guys that were telling everybody they needed to be holy, they see Jesus, he's not ministering like they want him to. And notice what verse 6 says. It uses the phrase, what? It says they conspired with the Herodians to do what to Jesus? To do what? Kill. Does anybody know any of the Ten Commandments? Is there a Ten Commandment that says do not kill? Do not murder, right? What hypocrites! These guys are mad about Jesus because he's healing on the Sabbath. And so what do they want to do? They want to kill him. That's hypocrisy. And we as Christians will take Scripture and we'll fit it into our norm and we'll say, well, this is how things need to be. And then when someone doesn't do it, we slander them. We speak maliciously about them. We gossip about them. And then we're talking, well, they're just bad. You hear what they're doing in their Sunday school class and they're terrible people. And what we're doing is breaking the law of the Lord that is clear on an issue of secondary importance to the person that's there. Number three, reaching out not regulating righteousness. Oh, be careful that your pursuit of holiness doesn't keep you from reaching out to people like Jesus did. Legalism will keep you from reaching out. And so the question that you can ask is, who are you hanging out with? And if they all are just holy rolling people, then something's wrong. We're missing the mark. Number four, speak intelligently, not ignorantly. These dummies, these Pharisees, blew it. They accused Jesus of eating on the Sabbath, and what happens? They had forgotten that King David had done the same thing. The great and awesome King David, and they had forgotten that he had done that, and they hadn't spoken bad about that, but they just didn't like Jesus doing it. We as legalists speak ignorantly to what we know of the Scriptures, or we take a Bible verse totally out of context, and we use it to beat people up. Next, we see that we need to stand strong and not stumbling blocks. Growing up in a different church, my older brother had invited a friend, a teenage friend, to a worship service at our church. The guy had become very uh, attracted to the things of the Lord, and he was uh, a young, I would say he was a punk. He was a young punk. You know what I'm saying when I say that. And my brother had brought him in, and he had earrings in his ear, back when earrings were the big thing. Remember the good old days when earrings were the bad thing? And he came in, and the usher, an older man, said that it wouldn't be good for him to sit up close to the pulpit because people would be offended because they wouldn't be able to get beyond seeing his ear and the dangling earring that he had. And so he walks in with us, and the usher sends him to the other side of the church and sets him there. You know what happened to that young man? He never set foot in a church again. And we create stumbling blocks. Can anybody give me chapter and verse about a young man wearing an earring? Anybody got it? No. But this guy had it, 
And this guy had made it on his own rule because he didn't like it. And that's not what young people did when he was a young kid. And so you know what? Why don't we just set you over here? And what that young man knew is I'm not even good enough to even talk with the Savior of the world. And we need to be careful while standing strong for the truth. And there will be times as a congregation, we'll have to stand strong for the truth. But brothers and sisters, be careful. We are not putting stumbling blocks or hurdles for people to get to Jesus. The final one is that we need to teach the truth, not personal taste. Very similar, we need to teach the truth. These guys were teaching what worked for them, what they loved, not the things that they were supposed to be teaching. That is the truth of God's word. I want you to see something very quickly. Again, speaking to the subtleness of this. Look at each of those spaces in that last point. If you see, each of them start with a C-H-R-I-S-T. That spells... Help me out here, folks. That spells Christ. They spell Christ on both ends. While both of them say the same thing, this is what I want you to think about this week. One leads to the Savior, and the other one drives them away. Which Christ are you presenting? Here's the problem. When you're presenting Christ on the last part of the statement, you're not presenting Christ at all. You're presenting, you're presenting a list of do's and don'ts and a way that it fits for your salvation, but not a way that fits the salvation of Jesus Christ. What are you presenting today? The issue of legalism will destroy our testimony, it will destroy our outreach, and it will destroy our Christ-likeness because we will be unable to go where Jesus did. And Christ wants us to go and minister to all of those that he ministered to. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, it's hard to look at a passage like this and not feel a bit convicted, that we think that Christians ought to look a certain way and, and wear certain clothes and, and uh, not have certain things uh, a part of their lives, Lord. And, and it's a hard balance to know when to stand strong and, and, and when to look beyond things that maybe make us upset but that you have come to set people free. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would long to open the doors of this church and open the doors of our homes and open the doors of our hearts to the Levites and the tax collectors and sinners in the world. Lord, we want to be like you in this story, not like the uh, Pharisees. Lord, we were once tax collectors and sinners, but you loved us and you ministered to us. Lord, I pray that we as a people, we as a church, would open our arms and would show love and affection to the least of these, to the broken ones, to the ones who need salvation. It may mean we go to different places, Lord. It may mean we go to places maybe we might even feel uncomfortable with. But Lord, we recognize that you came to earth with all its sin, with all its debauchery, so that you could seek and save that which was lost. We want to be like you, Jesus, even in the hard things. So we ask for your Spirit's help. In Christ's name we pray.